Hey guys, my name is Will Cook. I'm the student pastor here. Welcome. We're glad you decided to serve with us this morning. Um, in our student ministry upstairs, we call that the 229. We meet on Wednesday nights and we meet uh, 6th grade through 12th grade. And since we have kicked off the new school year, the new semester, we've been kind of having a, a Christocentric focus upstairs. And, and the reason behind that is because when, when you get some new students, we uh, incorporated uh, I believe 12 new sixth graders into our student ministry uh, this semester. And so my whole purpose this uh, past few months is to make sure that, that Christ is rightly preached. And so that's what we've been focusing on upstairs. We're getting ready to kick off something in November that I'm going to uh, call the why behind the what, which is essentially uh, some, some messages on doctrine, why we believe what we believe as a people of Christ, and why we associate the way that we do uh, with certain denominations and within certain uh, uh, levels of our faith. So what I want to do this morning is, is kind of take a little bit of what we've studied upstairs and, and repackage that, uh, look at some other issues, and, and, and hopefully have that same Christocentric focus for all of us. As Brian mentioned this morning, we are getting ready uh, to partake of communion. And so uh, just as, as he views this as a various, very serious uh, topic, a very serious time for us as a body of Christ, I too uh, expect that we will approach communion from a very serious standpoint and we will uh, deeply consider where our hearts are when we get to that point in the service. Um, so what we're going to look at in John chapter 8, verse 48 through 59 is Christ having a conversation with a group of men uh, that they're referred to as the Jews, the Judeans. Uh, these men, it's very important for us to understand their mindset, who they are as a people. Now, we're going to be painting with some broad brushstrokes, but that's very beneficial for us uh, so that we can understand their perspective as well as tap into the mind of Christ and understand his argument that he makes with these people. Okay, we're calling this the qualified Christ. We're essentially going to be looking at uh, the qualifications that, that Christ uh, lays out for himself, and then we're going to pursue that a little bit more and seeing not only what he says, but what he does and how he becomes the qualified Savior. In the fall of 2004, I first laid eyes on my now wife, Claire. One word, smitten. I was smitten. We had been playing intramurals for a couple of years, and our campus director at the BCM asked me, he pulled me aside, and he said, Will, I was curious if you would like to coach an all-girls team of flag football. After I picked my jaw up off the floor, I said, of course, I would love to coach an all-girls team of flag football. So the fall of 2004 rolls around, we get a new class of uh, students in, and so we had our first team meeting for anyone interested in playing flag football. And as we're getting ready to start the meeting, in walks Claire. And like I said, just smitten. Man, I knew from the moment that I saw her that she was special. So at that point, I knew it was on. The games were about to begin, so to speak. I was out to do anything I could to prove myself worthy of this woman's hand. Then she dropped a bombshell on me when she told me that she already had a boyfriend. I did not care. I was, 
I was not going to be dismayed by something as small as her already having a boyfriend. Um, so I pursued that man like a bobcat on a rabbit. I was going 90 miles an hour, asking her friends, calling our acquaintances. Um, I did whatever it took, and I got that phone number. I made her part of our team, and I had a regular weekly date set up every practice. Am I right? So the weeks turned into months, and eventually I caught word that her and her previous significant other were broken up, and I knew. I did my own little mental fist pump, and it was over. It was over. And so the rest is history. We dated in college. Uh, Her senior year, uh, I popped the question, and lucky for me, she said yes. Um, And we are still going through this thing called life together. And I'm so thankful for her. I'm thankful for her commitment and uh, her willingness to go through this life with me. but, but the thing was, you know, she never had to prove herself to me. She never had to give me a list of qualifications. She never had to bring out her resume as you might would at a job interview and say, here's why I'm qualified for this. No, it, it was me. I was the one. I saw it. I wanted her heart. Man, I was completely head over heels for this girl, and I was going to do anything I could to show her why this five-and-a-half-foot-tall, short white boy was worthy of making her my girlfriend. When we look at this gospel passage in the book of John, these Judeans, these Jewish men, were incessant that Christ prove himself. What are your qualifications? What's your resume? Who do you say that you are? That's the heartbeat of this interrogation. These men believe Christ to be a swindler, imposter, deceiver, and flat-out liar. So I want you guys to understand, as we break into this conversation, that was their mindset. Christ was an imposter. He was a swindler. He was a deceiver. He was a mocker of miracles. He did not represent Jehovah God the way that they wanted him to be represented. From a theological standpoint, they thought he was a heretic. And that's why they interrogated him with such ferocity. They wanted to prove him not as a savior. And they were going to do whatever it took. Early on, I want you to know that part of my plan in this sermon is to bombard you with questions. Questions from my heart, questions I believe uh, that will be applicable from the text. So that you have to wrestle with some interior heart motives. You have to wrestle with your stance before Almighty God. So I'm not going to leave any cards up my sleeves. I'm not pulling any punches. I just want you to know that up front. Are you like these men that interrogated Christ to the point where you say, God, you've got to prove yourself to me? Who do you say that you are? How do I know that's true? Are you really the Savior of the world. Are you qualified to be my king? These Jewish men could not reconcile their hearts to accept Christ for who he is. Now at this point in the gospel, keep in mind, we're already eight chapters in, okay? We're eight chapters in. Up to this point, he has performed loads and loads of miracles, okay? First miracle, turning water into wine, showing people, look, 
I have come so that your life may be complete and not just complete, but joyful. I want to be the life of the party, so to speak. I want you to have peace and contentment. I want you to be overcome with contentment. He will go on to perform other great miracles. He will cause the lame to walk. He will give sight to the blind. He will feed 5,000 families, not just 5,000 people, but 5,000 men, women, uh, and children, 5,000 families taking a couple of loaves and a few fish. And he will multiply that so that everyone is sustained. Still, even with this resume, even after performing all of these deeds, he is still not the Savior in their hearts. What does Christ have to do in order to prove that he is who the Scriptures claim him to be? What does Christ have to do in order to prove that he is who the Scriptures claim him to be? He wasn't changing their minds. He wasn't convincing their hearts. They were stubborn. They were calloused. He wasn't the king they wanted. He wasn't the savior that they thought he should look like. But the question that we have to drive home for ourselves is what standards have we set up that he has to meet? What questions must he answer? What feats must he accomplish? What deeds in our life are we looking for him to change? What, what things does he have to do to prove himself to us as the Savior of the world? In this conversation, John 8, 48 through 59, in my opinion, this is Will Cook. This is not uh, something from another uh, scholar. This is not something that you'll see highlighted in a comment section in your Bible, perhaps. But in my opinion, the tipping point in this conversation comes in verse 51. And so I want to highlight that. If you would read and indulge me, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. One of the tricky things with this text is as we are continuing to study textual criticism from a scholarly standpoint, we're starting to find some variance in who said what and how it was said and who is the actual speaker of the sentence. Uh, it can be a little bit tricky in your Bible if you don't have the red letters, okay? And, I, and I'm not necessarily a fan of red letters because of the textual variance, but it is helpful in this passage if you know exactly the words that Christ is saying. Christ says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. That's the word of Christ. Our Savior spoke these things. And as I said, I believe this is a tipping point. I believe this is one of the straws that broke the camel's back in this conversation. What did the Jews say? The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. First, we accused you. First, we used racial slurs. First, we tried to just throw you under the bus. But now you have proven our accusations to be accurate. Their anger, man, is, is hot. These guys are ready. They're ready to brawl. What did Christ mean? What's behind that statement? I want you guys to wrestle with this question that you're about to see pop up. Is Christ alluding to the idea that if we do the right things, that is, obey the law and commands, that we can escape death and live forever? Is Christ saying if you do the right things, you can have eternal life? Is Jesus telling his audience that by obeying all of his teachings with their words and actions, that they can earn or merit somehow eternal 
life. And here's the deal. If we answer yes to those questions, then we better be ready to back that up. We better have our toolbox open and our tools ready to go to work to defend yes. I don't think that's what Christ says. So if not, if Jesus isn't saying you can somehow do certain things or say certain things or live a certain way to inherit eternal life, then what is he saying? What is he saying? What I think is helpful here is for us to use the Bible as our uh, toolbox that we pull the tools from to answer uh, this question, if you will. So we're going to stick with the same human author, which is John, uh, divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit, John 14, 23. We're using this text. We're pulling it out. We're using it to support my hypothesis of what Jesus is saying here. John chapter 14, verse 23. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Seems to be the same thing. Seems to be the same argument that Christ is making. But I want you to notice something very, very important. Jesus doesn't just say that we must keep his word. He precedes that by stating If anyone loves me, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Obedience is a direct result of love for God. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. I'll repeat it again. Obedience is a direct result of love for God. True obedience. Obedience that our Father accepts as pure and faultless. Obedience that warms his heart. Not obedience out of guilt or shame. Not obedience out of trying to work your way into heaven. But obedience as a result of being accepted because of what Christ has done for you. That kind of obedience is a direct result of love for God. 1 John, again, same human author here, divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit. 1 John chapter 2, verses 4-6. through 6, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. The truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word... In him, truly, the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Joby and I had a seminary professor who has made his life's work to provide commentary on the Holy Scriptures free to anyone who has access to the Internet. He says this, Dr. Thomas Constable says, On the other hand, the Christian who is careful to observe all of God's word not just his commandments, gives evidence that he has come to understand and appreciate God's love for him. Man, that is so key. That's crucial. That is vital that we get that. That we don't just do things trying to earn God's favor. We do it because we've got God's favor. And that favor is uh, received through Christ. Because of what Christ has done for us, we are able to, in turn, love God. As we just sang, as Clint, our worship leader, directed us, we love because God loved us. Dead men cannot raise themselves from the death. But God is in the business of resuscitation. He is in the business of renewal. He makes all things new. He brings us to himself. These religious men in the passage, these Jewish 
hypocrites that were arguing with Christ, they completely missed this. Man, they had it all backwards. It was obedience first, and, and maybe possibly somewhere down the road we'll learn to love God, but I think that was the farthest thing from their mind. It was rules, 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 obey, obey, obey. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Paul sets us straight when he says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Can you look back in your life and see some times when God's mercy has completely overwhelmed you? You know, the mark of a person in love with God is someone who has rightly identified the extremity of their sin. Someone who has recognized their sin for what it is. Being hated by God. Their sin is completely hated by God. We have no right to claim a relationship with the utmost God the utmost high, the creator of the universe, the holy of holies. We have no right to stake that claim because of our sin, because of the disease that we were born into, that we inherited from Adam and Eve. Y'all, we are sinners to the core. But God changes that. He comes hard after us. He chases us down and he makes us new people. And because of that, our hearts are remade. We have the opportunity at that point to show God our love through our obedience. You know, these Jewish men, they were completely caught up in the law. If there wasn't a rule that they could find in the Pentateuch, then they were going to make some up. They would create rules to help make rules, to help follow rules. It was a very tough ordeal. It was a very difficult life. I can imagine that that robs the joy out of serving God completely. But y'all listen, the law isn't intended to save. The Old Testament law, 600 plus commands, is not intended to provide salvation for God's people. The law does, does a couple of things, but provide salvation, no. What it does is it points out God's holiness. It points out His holy nature. And we can see God is way, way, way up here. And we can't reach that. What it also does is it points out our lack of holiness. I was thinking about this a, a few weeks ago, and I think I have a decent analogy. So bear with me. But imagine that I've got my two-year-old son, and we're at a theme park, and we're getting ready to ride all the roller coasters. And we go to the kiddie section and we ride all the fun little kiddie rides and he has a blast. We do that for hours and hours. And then all of a sudden he gets the idea that he wants to ride the big roller coaster. Okay? So we walk up to the roller coaster and there's a sign that says, you must be this tall. And usually for me it's about right here. You must be this tall to ride the roller coaster. Okay? Liam and I are, are uh, challenged vertically. So we're not going to be able to make that ride. We're not going to be able to get on the roller coaster. That sign that tells us how short we are can't change that. It points out the standard of the roller coaster, and it po points out my inability to meet that standard. But it can't change it. 
In the same way, God's law points out God's standard for his people. It shows us what we must be striving towards in holiness. And it also shows us how insufficient we are to meet that standard of holiness. But listen, it doesn't change the fact that we're unholy. It doesn't. Enter Christ. Christ is the one who changes that. Christ upon the cross when he shed his blood for the remission of our sins is the one who bridges that gap. He closes the gap so that we are now sufficient in God's eyes. These Jewish men could not wrap their minds or more importantly their hearts around this. Where are you? Are you found believing Christ's words that he is a capable and qualified Savior in your heart to bridge that gap between your insufficiency and God's holiness. We're going to read on in John chapter 8, verse 53. The Jewish men are furious. But one thing that stands out to me is the motive or the reasoning for their anger. And I think maybe a better way to say it is, it occurred to me that something that should have stuck in their minds did not stick in their minds. In verse 53, we see a reply from the Jewish men. They say, are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Who the heck do you think you are, Jesus of Nazareth? You Samaritan, you demon-possessed man. You go and hang out uh, with, with the Samaritan woman at the well, and we would never step foot in her territory. She's not like us. She doesn't deserve to be like us. And yet you compare yourself to Abraham, and you say if we keep your word, that we can have eternal life? How dare you, you hypocrite, you heretic. In my opinion, these Jewish men were not concerned with whether or not they could keep Christ's words. In their minds, I believe that they thought they could uphold his standard, but Christ's standard wasn't holy enough for them. You see, when we read this today, we're looking at it from a different vantage point. We see it through a different lens because we have the Holy Scriptures and we have 2,000 years of history to help us see the holiness of Christ. But these guys could not see the holiness of Christ. And they were so self-righteous with their ability to keep rules that they thought they could do it. But Christ's rules weren't good enough for them. Guys, let me give you all a secret. You can never, never, never do enough or be enough to impress God. These guys thought they could. They thought if we obey enough rules, if we follow enough commands, if we say enough right things and we do enough right things, God will be impressed. That's out of our reach. That's beyond us. The secret is, again, you can never, never, never do enough or be enough to impress God, period. We are completely and utterly reliant on the cross of Christ to be our everything. That's it. That's it. 
take a step with me, imaginatively speaking, and think of yourself as a flower, okay? I uh, have a discipleship group with, with a handful of guys that I meet with on a weekly basis, and, and we were going through, through some text, and we were studying, and, and all of a sudden that, that light bulb went off, which it rarely does in my life. So when that light bulb goes off, I get out a pen and pad, and I start writing stuff down. So I said, this is going to be called the flower analogy, okay? So imagine with me that we're all flowers, spiritually flowers, okay? And what we do is we try to paint our petals to be as uh, beautiful and vibrant and colorful as possible because we think if we can have the, the best, most colorful, uh, prettiest petals on our stalks that we will impress people. God doesn't tell us to worry about painting our petals. He wants us to focus on our roots. And I think these guys, when they were focused on keeping the law, that what they were doing is trying to impress God and others by painting their spiritual petals. Guys, that's not going to provide eternal life. Being deep-rooted in Christ provides eternal life. And as a result, we will have the works to follow, those beautiful, colorful petals. The gospel tells us that we must rely on Christ not to just change our external appearance, but more importantly, change our internal identity. Christ provides new life. That's it. It's Christ working inside to change your outside. As Matt Chandler would put it, are you working on this relationship, which is you and God, so that your relationships out here between yourself and others are made right. Before you get your relationship with God right, you can't get your relationship with others right. When God works on the inside, you'll notice it on the outside. John chapter 8 verse 55 reads, you have not known him, I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. Once again, Christ returns it, brings it back to the point of knowing and loving God. And as a result of knowing and loving God the Father, our actions will follow. This obedience, this design love is precisely what qualifies him to truthfully say the heathen that he is God. Christ is qualified as God. Even he still has the resume today to not just claim the credentials, but prove his credentials because he is still changing lives. He is still reforming hearts. He is still repurposing people for the use, uh, so that they can be used by the kingdom of God. And only Christ can do that. We live in a pluralistic society where we are being taught by our culture that spiritually speaking, we're all trying to get to the top of the mountain and just pick a path pick a path. It doesn't matter what it is, but if you pick a path and you stay on that path, you'll get to the pinnacle of eternal peace. Christ doesn't buy into that argument. He doesn't preach that argument. He says in a few chapters from this uh, argument that he makes here, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And y'all, he's got the qualifications to back it up. We've already seen loads and loads of miracles leading up to this point. We're going to see his teachings continue after this point. And ultimately, what we see him embrace is the cross, 
where he went uh, before the sinner, before God, and he breathed his last. He shed his blood to make remission for our sin so that the wrath of God that we should have inherited because of our sin, that wrath could be atoned and we could be made righteous. We can then be called the sons and daughters of God, adopted into his family. It's all because of Christ. Christ alone is qualified to change water into wine, give sight to the blind, cause the cripple to walk, and far more importantly, transform the heart of the rebellious sinner into a righteous person. There's going to be a few ways that we work this out this morning and some questions that I ask. But the primary question that must be addressed is whether or not this, is Christ qualified in your heart? Is Christ qualified in your heart? Who is Christ? John chapter 10 goes on to say that uh, he is the good shepherd, uh, that he is one with the Father. John 14 explains that he is the way, the truth, and the life, as we just stated. John 15, he refers to himself as the true vine. In John 16, he states that he is overcoming the world. Uh, And here we see in John chapter 8, two things that we cannot miss, okay? Two things that that are very important to this sermon, to this argument, to the point that I'm trying to make this morning. Christ in this conversation will identify two vital qualifications of his holiness, his authority over the tomb and his authority over time. Thank you, John Phillips, for that great piece of scholarly insight. Christ has the authority over the tomb. He has defeated death, hell, and the grave. No one else has done that. No one. He is the supreme savior because of his power over the tomb. Only Christ is qualified to defeat death. And that is where our ultimate peace comes from as Christians. No matter what we face in the here and now, no matter what obstacles we must endure, no matter what trials we might see, we have peace in knowing that our Savior has conquered death. That's it. We're not promised an easy life. Uh, In fact, the book of James tells us that we're going to have some difficulties. But what we are promised, guys, is that our Savior Christ has defeated death. That should give us hope that we will have eternal rest on the other side. The person who puts their faith in Christ, when they pass from this life, they will not see death, but they will see Him. That should give us hope. It must resound with the heart of the believer. In John 8, 51 through 55, Jesus explains that he is triumphant over the tomb. In John 8, 56 through 59, he explains that he is triumphant over time. He is the I am. When he told this to the Jewish men, it set off an alarm in their uh, minds that, that we can't possibly imagine because they were so in tune with the Old Testament scriptures. They were so in tune with the story of Moses. They were so in tune with the fact that when God told Moses to go face Pharaoh, he said, you tell him the I am sent you to set the people free. And now Christ is looking at these Jewish men. He's staring them in the eyes and he's saying, I am the I am. I have come to truly set the people free free, that they might not face death, but they can be set free from the penalty of their sins, from the power of sin, and from the presence of sin, ultimately with God the Father in heaven. Is Christ qualified in your heart? Guys, we're getting ready to partake of communion, and this is going to be a very somber and serious moment that we as a collective body of Christians participate in. 
as we're preparing for this, we've got to wrestle with some questions for the saint. That is, for those of you who are believers. Is your current lifestyle contradictory to your current vow? Are you saying you are a believer and acting like a heathen? Are you claiming to be one with Christ and living as one with the world? Are you a hypocrite? Listen, that's okay. That's okay. The worst fallacy would be to fake that you're not a hypocrite knowing that you are. Own it. Own it. And and, and let Christ restore that in you. Let him bring you back to obedience. Let him bring you back to a heart where you want to strive for holiness because of what he has done for you. Listen, it's, it's, it's not okay, but it's okay. It's not okay to be a, a sinner, but it's, a, it's okay to recognize that and step forward courageously. Yes, I understand that there are consequences and repercussions for our sin, but that's okay. It's a far better thing to embrace uh, the current consequences than it is to embrace the eternal consequences. So if you're a believer... If, if, if you are a person who has accepted the qualifications of Christ and you have claimed faith in him, yet you are living as a heathen, guys, listen, today's your day. Today is your day. Just as Pastor Brian told us last week, man, be a title to tell on yourself. Make your seat a place of prayer. Make this altar a place of prayer. Get with one of our counselors in the back and spill your guts, man. Confess your sins to Christ. Lay it all on the line, knowing that he will restore you, that you can find forgiveness in the cross. That's where we all are, guys. And listen, if you're not a saint, if you are truly a sinner, not found covered in the blood of Christ, that is, you have never put your faith in Christ. Today can be a glorious day for you. We are striving as a staff to preach the gospel rightly and boldly so that our community can be changed and it is changed one heart at a time as the Spirit draws you to faith and repentance from your sin. Will you trust Christ to be your Savior? Will you accept His qualifications? Will you embrace Him as the Lord of your life? We're going to have a time where we get very quiet and very still and very reflective. And what I'd like to do, again, I'll I'll restate it just so I'm very clear. Guys, expose your hearts to God. Make your place a place of prayer. The church is a people who are ready and willing to help point you to God and His forgiveness. That's what we want to do. Nothing would make us happier than to show you the mercy of Christ this morning. Before you take communion, and we practice open communion, that is, if you are a believer, and you don't even have to be a member of our church, but if you're a believer in Christ, we want to offer communion to you. Please, evaluate your stance with God. Where are you? Where are you? 
We want this Holy Communion to indeed be holy. This uh, juice and this bread represents the blood and the body of Christ that was broken and that was spilt on our behalf. And as we partake of this, we are reflecting on the awesome sacrifice that our Savior made for us. And I want us to do that in, in a right manner. And guys, if you want to partake of communion, but more importantly, if you want to be a member of the body of Christ, if you are ready to step out in faith and call Him your Savior, do that. Muster up the courage that you can and take that step of faith. We're going to pray and then we're going to get ready to partake of the elements of this ordinance of communion. Let's bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, thank you so very much for your word, for Christ, for your Holy Spirit, for your love. God, may we as a people return to the fervor, the passion, the joy of serving you because of what you've done for us. May we embrace your sacrifice. May we strive on a daily basis to walk in holiness, not trying to gain favor, but because of the favor that we have. Lord, I pray for our local congregation. I pray for our people here this morning. Lord, only you can speak to our hearts in a way that will change our hearts. God, for the sinner, I pray that you would instruct their hearts to repent. Deeply convict them of their sin and point them to your salvation. God, for the saint, I pray that we would continue to wrestle and fight tooth and nail against every temptation because we are a different people. We've been set apart for such a cause as this. Help us to walk in the light just as you are in the light, Father. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for seeing our need and meeting our need so that we could be called your beloved sons and daughters. Heavenly Father, we pray this in the qualified name of Jesus Christ. Amen.